0: I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. Tori might try to jump on later, so hopefully that's not too jarring if that happens. But I do love that she was hoping to dial in, like, from a mountain.
1: That seems perfect.
0: (laughs) Okay, so uh, the really quick and easy first question is if you could just share your name, um, your pronouns, and any other identifiers that you
1: want to share. Uh, my name's Heather Hansman, my pronouns are she and her, and what, are, what do people say for identifying factors? <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you call yourself a, a journalist?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I actually stumble with that question a little bit, because I don't know what the, I think it's so hard when you're you work for yourself to kind of like decide what bucket you fit into. Mm-hmm. So I say, yeah, I say I'm a journalist, I say I'm a writer, I think I can say that I'm an author, that's like a funny one Maybe like, when do you, when do you claim that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a writer.
0: I'd say writer sums up Heather Hansman pretty darn well. She's very much an author too. We last had Heather on She Explores back in 2019 to talk about her first book, down River. In it, she paddled down the Green River to research water in the West. It's part adventure memoir, part investigative journalism, as she made sense of the people, flora and fauna, that depend on the river's waters. This time around, we're talking about Heather's latest book, Powder Days, which digs deep into the past, present, and future of skiing. Both books benefit from Heather's personal experiences, switching off between working ski mountains in the winter and being a river guide in the summer.
1: Did I spend my 30s? writing about things that I did in my 20s. Like, what am I going to do next?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just an infinity mirror. (laughs) I know, yeah. It's a new shtick.
1: Maybe you do need a little bit of distance to be able to really kind of like dig into those. I think it takes time to kind of sit with those issues and sit with like the kind of complicated feelings about that to really kind of unpack them. And I think like the interesting thing about like putting a book together is that it takes, so much digging and processing and compressing and funneling to like come to the final process. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of these stones were things that had been sitting there for a long time. And that's actually like one of the things that I love the most about reporting and writing and is the coolest is that you kind of get this permission to dig into these things that you have to push into like a deeper level.
0: Not only has writing Powder Days given Heather permission to dig deep on subjects like skiing culture, the extreme wealth divides of ski towns, who gets to access skiing, climate change, and more, Powder Days' existence allows anyone who opens its binding to dig deeper. Heather says that it's a book filled with questions that beget more questions, which pretty much guarantees a great conversation. And that's what this episode is today. My teammate Tori Duhaime, she, they, who you usually hear on podcast ads or behind the scenes on our Instagram, got really charged up after she read the book. Ask Tori about skiing, and they'll say that skiing is everything to them. Tori grew up in Durango, Colorado, where she learned to ski at Purgatory, often with a gaggle of dudes, Tori's words, not mine, while her parents volunteered at guest services every weekend to secure their season passes. Later, she started backcountry skiing in the San Juans with her dad. Recently, Tori moved to Richmond, Virginia, and has found a new love for independently owned resorts. She'll actually join us a little bit later on in this interview from Snowshoe Mountain in West Virginia. Why? Well, I couldn't pass up the opportunity for Tori to join us for a conversation about skiing from the ski hill. But two, and more importantly... Tori is wildly passionate about changing the ski community for the better. In the parallel universe of this interview, Tori was still finding reception. And I started off by asking Heather about her early experiences skiing. Do you remember your first time going to a ski hill?
1: I don't remember my first time. I have a pretty clear memory of when I was, you have to miss him, I was six. I fell and broke my thumb. When I was a kid, I was skiing with my dad and he had taken me down up black diamond that I wasn't supposed to go down because the trail that he wanted to take us down was closed um, and so I had this very clear memory of like being in the clinic at the bottom of the ski hill and my mom being really frustrated with my dad. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have a like super clear initial memory. My family, I grew up in New England and my family sort of like casually skied all growing up, but I got really hooked into it in high school because my high school had a really good kind of could ski for free ski club.
0: Mm. oh you could ski for free with the ski club
1: they had what was called the bagel bench and if you sold bagels at the bagel bench you got to you basically like made money for ski trips so that was one of oh. my like high school high school things <laughs> um and other than that it was I think it was like 40 bucks or something to if you wanted to ski and you got a bus up to the mountain and you got rentals and you got lessons and you got the whole shebang so it was a really good I mean regardless of free or affordable it's a really really good deal
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also grew up in New England. So I also have those ski wasn't my life memories, but we would go every now and then and also had night skiing. I remember doing night Hmm. skiing in high school at like Pads Peak, which is a pretty, pretty small mountain. But it was fun. It was fun. It's a Hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of of the ski bum or the the kind of dream of out west. I never I never experienced that myself, but have definitely felt very very cold on a mountain before. So I can relate to that. Somewhat universal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I would love to hear a little bit about how how it feels when you're skiing and it and it feels right. Would you be able to describe that for me?
1: Oh, Gail, yeah, that's like the hardest part. <laughs> I think that's why. <laughs> That's the hard part in writing or talking about any kind of physical activity, I think, is that like the words, it's really hard to figure out the right words and explain it without feeling cheesy or overwrought or flowery or that kind of thing. Mm. But I think one of the things that somebody told me at some point in the, the reporting on this is that they think a lot about gravity. And I think in skiing, more than anything, I've never you know, jumped out of an airplane or anything like that. But I think in more than anything else that I know of, you get to sort of like not abide by the rules of gravity. And there's this sort of like maybe surfing, maybe sometime when you're like riding a bike downhill or something like that. But there is this sort of like, you're not quite playing by the rules of physics element of it. And you're floating that I think is really hard to get anywhere else. Yeah. Is there
0: a kind of gravity that you've experienced in your life that has taken you towards this like ski culture or that lifestyle? Like, could you describe the gravitational pull? And you think about it's a different mm-hmm. way, but like thinking about the planets yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and the way that you kind of fell into skiing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think that kind of pull, you know, one of the things that for myself and sort of like in thinking about this book, obsession is one of those things that I'm really fascinated by and like why people get, obsessed with something and why something as sort of like, you know, like arbitrary skiing can become this thing that becomes gravitational pull of your life. For me, there's sort of this element, this physical element where it feels really good and you're outside. And there's also a piece where you're like connected to people and plugged into community and you're kind of pushing limits. And there's this like real, I don't know if adrenaline is exactly the right word, but there's this like way of sort of like pushing yourself and testing yourself. And so in a lot of ways that skiing thing for me initially especially was like sort of this framework to fit all these pieces that felt important in. That it was mm-hmm. sort of like me pushing and testing myself. It was a way to like feel like I was a part of something. It was a way to be outside. It was sort of like this maybe like a little too tidy container for all that stuff. But I think there were a lot of a lot of things that I was looking for and a lot of things that I didn't even know that I wanted that skiing initially let me kind of access.
0: Mm-hmm. And when did you start to think about some of the problematic aspects of of skiing? Because, you know, Powder Days is a book that covers a lot of different topics and it's really complex. It's like super intersectional, you know, and I think that one of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about is the way that, you know, with pretty much everything we do with outdoor recreation, there is, there are these like multiple truths that we need to hold about Mm -hmm. the things that we love. Um, So I'm curious when... When you started thinking about some of the aspects of of ski skiing and ski culture that didn't always feel as good or didn't always feel the same as like that great feeling that you get when you're when you're going down the mountain,
1: yeah, I think the, the good feelings can often be really fleeting, and <laughs> the hard ones can be <laughs> a little more baseline and solid. I think I don't know what the like very first chink in that was, but I know. When I was starting to work on this book, I went back and kind of read a lot of the journals that I had been keeping when I was you know, 21 and right out of college and moved to the mountains for the first time. And it's funny kind of looking back on it. It's so easy to tell the story that's like, oh, it was the best thing ever. All we did was ski all the time and hang out with my friends. And we were just like adventure, adventure, adventure. And going back and reading kind of what I was actually thinking at that time, I was so sort of like, anxious and insecure and worried that I didn't fit in and worried about, you know, like jobs and money and what I was going to do next. And there was this kind of like under and like maybe I'm just sort of an anxious person anyway, but there was this (laughs) kind of like underlying level of, of instability that felt present even then when I was 21 and objectively didn't have a ton to worry about besides supporting myself and taking care of myself. And then, and I've been working, I worked kind of after I did the dirtbag thing, I worked in T Magazine. And when you're trying to kind of cover stories on that and report on that to try and tell stories that are more interesting than just like, here's a cool adventure, which I think is like inherently not that interesting of a story. I would agree. Um, you're, yeah, you're kind of, which is like a trope about writing about the outdoor world that we can talk about. But I think that in starting to dig into that, you, you start to see the cracks fairly quickly. I mean, I think that sort of, even when you talk about, like, the quote-unquote ski bum, which is, like, a phrase that I think can be sort of, is a little cheesy, there is this sort of narrative that it's, like, this person who's, like, living below the surface and breaking the rules and, like, sliming by, and it's sort of, like, if you even just unpack that and you're, like, where does that come from? Who gets to do that in the first place? There's Mm -hmm. some heavy levels of privilege and economic leveling and access, even in that sort of, like, base idea of who who the most obsessive skier might be and then I think like you know I kind of washed out of mountain towns for like I don't know if you'd call it a real job but like something different to be a journalist and in watching my friends who kind of it's almost like the sliding doors aspect of your own life where it's like what if I had stayed in men's ski patrol or something like that watching kind of like my peer group grow up and try to buy houses and have kids and be real people in these highly elite exclusive towns and then Deal with less. Deal with climate change impacting their lives. Like watching those sort of real life factors as you try and grow up in this fantasy land, I think, and to try and kind of like align the reality with the idea, I think is sort of this like core thread that weaves through the book and also just like weaves through the way I am like thinking about the world and trying to trying to grow up. <laughs>
0: And one of the the things that I loved talking with Tori about your book in preparation for this interview was the fact that for her, reading the book made her want to ask even more questions about Mm. about the ski industry, about ski culture. So one of the things that we were curious about was there's a gap between you write a book and it, it gets released. I've published a book and had it. It took a year between like when I finished it and like when it came out. And so even in that time period, I had learned a lot, thought maybe differently about certain things. Certain things were in print that maybe I was like, maybe I would have changed that if there's like another edition or something. Uh, but we were curious if there was anything that you felt like you, you left out of the book that you mm-hmm. wished you'd included. You know, when we think about these different topics of uh, ski culture, access, climate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, so much of this is kind of a moving target, too. You know, the timing for books is funny. I had A first draft of this like January 2020 and then COVID hit and I mean first of all I was like oh my god is anyone gonna read want to read about skiing this self-centered and not something that's worth talking about but in a lot of ways COVID has really sort of exacerbated a lot of the issues that were in the in the book in that you know, we kind of have this, like, zoom boom of people moving, people who are all all of a sudden untethered from their jobs, who can be anywhere, who want to move to the mountains, and that bumps up real estate prices, that sort of shifts the knob on who can live in these places, and so there are just these kind of, like, crowding, and, like, in the face of that, I think, I know I, I think a lot of people have, like, really wanted or craved or needed to be outside more when we're in a pandemic and can't interact the way we used to, so I think that that sort of like desire for and the kind of like ability of who can do this thing, who has the economic capital or the ability or the flexibility to do it has really pressurized a lot of these questions. And I think that Mm -hmm. like what you're saying earlier about like you come in with more questions. I feel like I, you write a book and people are like, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the takeaway. And for me, it's like, there's not, I, I almost came out with more questions than I went in with. And I think that part of that is like, there's not one answer Answer, or there's not one like switch we can slip to be like, okay, here, let's like open up the channels of access to this super elite sport. Or like, if we do this, there will be snow forever. <laughs> like none of these things are super easy. But yeah, I think that, I think that it's kind of a changing, the framework is constantly changing. A lot of these questions have been like even more pressurized as we've gone into it. I do think the kind of the, the section that I feel like I didn't dig into as much as I could have, or I kind of wish that, I mean, and this could also be a whole book on its own, but just the, like who gets to be a skier, who has access, mm-hmm. what are the barriers around, especially around race and physical ability. And I think that when we say like ski bum, the archetype is such a, and you look at media for 50 years, the archetype is such a specific white, privileged, straight, able-bodied, cisgendered dude,
2: mm. and to even
1: like break down that kind of representation is such an important kind of line in, I think, and even just to break down that kind of like, what does a skier look like, archetype, and then also what are the actual pathways to getting people who don't have those levels of privilege into the sport, I think is a really, really complicated and also a really important question.
2: Mm-hmm
1: people, you know, will and do and continue to dig into for if we want this thing to keep existing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, and I know I saw I saw Tori try to jump in. I don't think it's yeah. going to be possible.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm here and oh. I can hear you all, but I don't know if I come across clear enough. I have run all over the mountain trying to find clear Wi-Fi <laughs> and the ski school lady is letting me like hunker down so i'm not out in the cold oh, I love it. but if it doesn't <laughs> if it doesn't work i don't want to mess up the entire recording no, you know, Tori, you
0: sound good. I think this could be a first for She Explores. We've got, like, a live reporter coming <laughs> in like,
1: 20 this minutes means, into the conversation. Seems perfect. Like, I think this is how it should be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I just, like, ripped down a random back dirt road in West Virginia with a non-alcoholic demo free beer in my hand. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like I'm just adding to the potential authentication of the ski bum lifestyle. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. This is the future of skiing right here. No (laughs) alcohol and West Virginia.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now that Tori's here, the conversation can really get started. After a quick break. Does all this talk of skiing make you want to pick up and experience something new? Plan your perfect vacation with uncruised small ship adventures. UnCruz has a whole lot in common with she explores. They offer intimate, communal experiences with an emphasis on environmental sustainability and responsible travel that allow you to appreciate the local culture. Imagine being on board an all-inclusive small ship through Mexico's Sea of Cortez with no crowds, no lines, daily excursions, and fully vaccinated guests. Every trip is all-inclusive, including farm-to-table food, drinks, transportation, gear, and expert naturalists and guides. Right now, Uncruise is offering big savings on trips to Mexico, Alaska, and more, and they're giving our listeners a great deal. Save $500 to $750 per person on sailings in the Sea of Cortez and Spring in Alaska seven-night adventures. Valid on bookings made through April 15, 2022. To get this fantastic offer and learn more about planning your small ship adventure, go now to my special URL. Uncruise.com slash pages slash explore. Remember, that's uncruise.com slash pages slash explore to get big savings on your next vacation. We're back. Before the break and before Tori joined us, Heather had talked about some of the areas she wished she could have dug deeper into the book around representation, which was a perfect segue to a question Tori had around language.
2: I'm very curious about just some of the, the barriers that we have created, especially around the idea of who belongs and who doesn't. And through reading, especially around the conversation of Aspen and Cloud9 and some of the the more like elite ways of engaging with skiing, I was thinking about how we've potentially taken that need to reject the elite in some ways and how that's actually then perpetuated the way that we we also mock all wrongfully so those who are who are still just gaining access and the way that like the idea of the gaper somewhat started from the mocking of elite and yet now it's turned into being a barrier for for low income entry and and what have you and that there's this kind of interesting way in which we we utilize language and and appeal and apparel to gatekeep and yet it's it's actually sort of this weird middle ground that we are projecting onto both other ends of the spectrum, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. So is is skiing like high school, basically. Is a question it is. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: And yeah. I thought
0: the same thing. That was when I said to Tori, I was like, this feels very high school.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that's like, that's a really perceptive way of thinking about it, I think, and that there is this insider, outsideriness. that I think is true. Like, I have felt that in surfing, like, I think there's many sort of places where that can kind of show up. But I think in skiing, especially because there is this, financial barrier to entry too that there is this sort of like inside outside I have felt this and seen this where like and even when I was like scanning with tickets on the mountain we would see these like fancy people show up at the Ritz with their helmet on backwards and you're like oh look at that Jerry he doesn't know what's going on so I think there's a there's a level at which it's sort of like hard line but also not obvious or like very sort of like socially encoded inside outside aspect to this that I think is really problematic and I think that yeah I think you're right and that maybe it did initially come from this like hey this is my town where the locals I want to make sure or like you can't just buy your way into this thing but I think there is it it has become and probably always was this way to gatekeep people who weren't in any kind of like exclusive community, Tori, I think you actually said this better than I did in the beginning, but like there, it has become this way of using year of using skill, of using access to potentially keep people out or to kind of like, like Jerry of the day, you have these Instagram accounts where you like, you make fun of the kooks. And I think that that sort of like a hard line of saying like, hey, I'm in and you're out in a way that's highly, highly, highly exclusive. And also, like, I was talking about, did you guys ever listen to the Out of Bounds podcast with Adam Jaber? He's another, he's like a Massachusetts guy. Tori does.
2: I've listened to, I've actually listened to more of Big Stick Energy, the one led by Tori. Yeah, the women's one. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. But Adam's Palestinian, he has this, like, one of his things is like, hey, I have this, like, whole group of family and people and, like, community that I want to bring in, and the barrier to entry of even getting them on good gear is so high and hard. And he's like, he's telling me the story about like taking his uncle skiing and he's like, it wasn't my uncle. And he didn't have me to like tell him what size boots he needed and what, like what gear he wanted. There's like no way he would have gotten in and had a good time. So I think that like that step can be so hard, even in just like the knowledge aspect and in the access to gear, knowing where to go, knowing how to hold your skis. Like there's so many sort of like, levels of coding that are hard to break through and then to have the people on the inside be shitty and judgy and be posting pictures on the internet making fun of it just like adds this other barrier to entry and I think yeah that kind of question of how did that lens of exclusivity flip from punching up to punching down I don't know if that was if there's like a clear line on that or if there was always making fun of the whoever it might be. But I think it
2: is. I think it's definitely there. I think it's definitely problematic. So I actually grew up in the San Juans myself. And so I, the ending, which I managed to read just last night before today, which was just a lovely little cherry on top for me personally. It's been so interesting since moving out to the mid-Atlantic where skiing is just a very different type of accessibility and the ways that it's actually had to Put me in front of my my own uh, perspectives and some of those mm. those biases that I've absolutely perpetuated, because you see such a different range of diversity and even just in income levels and sport levels and I feel like out west everybody and their mother was like trying to go pro,
1: <laughs> and
2: <laughs> it's been it's been really cool to re-find people simply enjoying the sport. Mm -hmm. Because so much of that is something that I've perpetuated. And I think that's one of the losses of the ski bum is that the pro model is in a way making it so that we if you start to become well skilled in skiing, you almost lose sight of simply enjoying it because Mm -hmm. there's a pro model to look towards or possibly monetize this thing that we just enjoy doing. And I love yeah. seeing people just enjoy doing the sport again.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's so much tied up in that. And I think part of that is outside expectations and social media and how you're seeing it presented to you by your peer group and other people. But I think that that question of like, what is skiing for? Like, do we all need to be going? Do we all need to be sponsored athletes? Do we all need to be constantly pushing at like the upper level of what it might be? I think it's such a, I mean, that's something I have struggled with too, where it's like, you know, I think I've had ski days where I've like skied around, you know, for a story or something and skied around with athletes and been like, God, I'm the worst skier in the entire world. This sucks. And then you're like, wait a second, what's your baseline? What's the point of this? And I was in Durango a couple weeks ago skiing with a friend who has a, has a young kid. And she was kind of lamenting that where she was like, her, her kid's three. And she was like, I feel like we should be getting her out skiing because everyone else around us has their kids been on Mm -hmm. skis since they were one and a half. And like, are we doing it wrong? And it's like, no, if you don't feel like it, if your kid's not into it, like why, why is there this like constant achievement level for something that's like recreational? And for most people like can and should and is only recreational and should be something that just like is fun and joyful. There is a level I think where One of the appealing things about skiing is kind of pushing it and kind of like seeing what your body can do and what your brain can do. But Mm -hmm. I think that that's not the only part of it. And I think if you're always chasing that, it can be dangerous physically and mentally. And it also can be a way to like drive yourself crazy and not enjoy it. And like, what's the point of that in any aspect?
0: Totally. Well, I'm going to steal one of Tori's questions because I want to kind of allude back to Heather, when you were answering the question about uh, language, you used the phrase locals or like mm. locals don't do this. Or So what do you think of as the definition of, of locals for these mountains?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that is that can be a loaded question in a lot of ways. But I think for me, it's like, okay, who are the people who are living and working in this town who are then supporting the economy or supporting the function of like the skiing? I think that's another one of those sort of like gatekeepery questions. I was talking to, I think I was in Telluride, and someone was like, "Oh yeah, you know, like I've lived here for thirty years, so in another thirty, I can call myself a local." And so mm-hmm. I think there is this sort of like you ha- and I felt like that when I first moved to P-Towns, Like the first season I was there, the people who have been there for a while were like super, super skeptical and are like, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take the time to make friends with you because like you're probably gonna be gone soon." And then after you stick around for a summer and another winter, people are like, "Oh okay, you're." you're here, I can like give you the time of day. Which I think is sort of a defense mechanism in these places that can be really transient and really mobile. But I think that like in the framework of like, how do we take care of locals in a ski town and how do we hold on to a local community? I think it is that like, okay, who are the people who are like working the jobs here? Who are the ski instructors and the patrollers, but also who are the teachers, who are the doctors, you know, like who are the people that kind of like support the local functions? And like I was saying, I was in Jackson last week and one of my good friends he used to work for the news- newspaper there, and he was on this journalism panel that I went to. And they were talking about that kind of issue of, like, how do we, it's gotten so economically divided there. Housing is such a big issue that it's just, like, pushing, pushing the people who work the kind of jobs that support those towns out of town, out of the valley, like, the radius is just getting bigger. And he was kind of saying, he was like, I just feel really worried about this community because, like, there might be a point where, like, the only people who can afford to live here are second homeowners or people coming in from other places. And you lose that sort of local ecosystem of people who actually depend on the the town. So I think that who is a local, I think we can drill it down just to being like the people who are like part of the, I say ecosystem a lot. I don't know if that's like exactly the right word, but that kind of like world that makes the place work.
2: Mm. It's also interesting. Sometimes I think of like city hall, in mm. a future of a town of only second homeowners and what's yeah. it look like to have to have a community that's not able to be actively present for the the future planning and the the city structures systemically and i mean there's also this sort of deeply heartbreaking mirroring of the displacement of indigenous people in this mm-hmm. conversation as we talk about the, the loss of of who's considered local and mm. that you know localization is also in and of itself a, a displacement
1: yeah yeah like who's it, it kind of gets back to that language question of like who is the one defining what that means and who has the power to kind of like put the framework mm. around it yeah but i totally. think it is that 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 question of like okay who's going to be making the decisions for replace? place who gets to kind of chart out what the what the future looks like. And I think that's one of my big takeaways in this or like we talked earlier about like, what are the lessons, <laughs> that like, what comes out of it? And I think one of the kind of like questions or things that I'm chewing on is this, Auden Chandler who's the head of sustainability at Aspen kind of told me this thing where he was like, ski bombing is sort of like historically and essentially anti-citizenship where there's this like idea that you're kind of like working under the system and you're not paying for anything and you're like skating by. And he's like, that's not sustainable. And, like, if you want this thing to exist and to, like, you know, whatever that thing, you know, seeing snow, whatever the thing is, you have to engage with it. And you can't just be, like, you can't be pissed off at change if you're not engaging with it. And there are a lot of really – that's an oversimplification. There are a lot of really big economic power structure factors going into that. But that, to me, has been one of my things. It's, like, okay, we're the grown-ups now. Like, if you want this thing to try and be good or to try and change in the way that you want, like, you have to engage with it. And you have to work on that, and you have to show up and vote and go to city council meetings and put things on the table. Like you can't just kind of throw your hands up and be like, "Well, this sucks. I don't like how this is going." And I think that that's like that runs counter to this kind of like dirtbag beating the system ethos. But if it's going to continue to exist, like we
2: have to evolve that way. Absolutely, Tori, do you have anything to add there? No, I I sort of lost out on the tail end of that, but it sounds like it was. <laughs> Very well. (laughs) Um, Teased out. Go vote. (laughs) Go vote. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think one of the really interesting things that you started to touch on at the end, and I think you maybe grazed over it, I think in this conversation is the the sort of obsession with like the the first ascent and Mm -hmm. the mirroring of that possibly turning into who who ends up getting the last ascent.
1: Ooh, mm. Like that
2: was a that was a hard statement to read uh, as things started to wrap up in, in the book. I guess I'm curious. I, I don't know if you've gotten to talk too much in the climate realm yet in this conversation before I got here. <laughs> Haven't touched it,
0: actually. But we might not get to and <laughs> yeah. <him>. That's OK.
2: <laughs> that's <laughs> Sit funny. down for
0: another hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but I think that's such an interesting mentality because there's also I mean, there's already in and of itself some like problematic nature in being obsessed with like, even the idea that any of us could have first ascents as if there's, there weren't people climbing these mountains before skiing or what have you. But regardless, like it's it's such an interesting concept to try and process climate change in the con- context of culture this way. But I, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of curious for you to elaborate on that idea of that full circle first to final ascent-descent
1: one of the things that, like, I thought about a lot in thinking about skiing is this sort of way it aligns with this, like, problematic frontier narrative, go West, young man, like, we are the white people who are going to go conquer the country narrative that I think is so inculcated in American history and it's so problematic. And I think that that, and it's tied to all these other, you know, it's tied to growth, it's tied to capitalism, it's tied to the way we try and, like, have this, like, chargey into new new things, I want to be the first, I want to do it right, you know, like, it's the way we look at technology, it's the way we look at Mars, like, it's tied to so many of these things, and so I think that changing that framework around, like, okay, that's not a realistic target, I mean, maybe it never was a realistic target, but it's not, at some point, we'll have, we have, we will have, we have touched all the places, how do we then switch a framework around, you know, like, not growing and pushing and trying to like take care of the things that we have and, and like switching our mindset around, like you can't pushing towards that goal of something new or of growth or change is not realistic. We have to like switch or swap our framework, I think is this like really interesting social, psychological, cultural <laughs> question. And I think that that, you know, in a lot of ways I'm so far down this, you know, skiing, skiing as a metaphor, <laughs> wormhole, but I think that it is this way to kind of tangibly look at how we can't just set our framework like that anymore. We can't just expect that things are gonna keep growing and growing and growing and going forever because it's not realistic within the framework of resources and of society. So I think it is, I don't know how to shift that framework and be okay with it, but I think it is something we're gonna be running up against in so many, we already are running up against in so many ways. I mean, I was even thinking about that in the context of the Olympics and just being like, how many more spins can they do? <laughs> like, what? Like, how far?
2: <laughs> Seriously. Like,
1: at what point are we done?
2: <laughs> there's that, so much yeah. conversation about that in the snowboarding world that I've been listening to mm-hmm. on another podcast with my partner. And, yeah, this idea that, like, there's actually a point where other other regulations are going to have to come into place. I think about this in the backcountry so much ever since mm-hmm. that access started to become more desirable. And honestly, like, it's one of those things where it's like, absolutely, I want everybody to want to do this and like, but do it safely. And the pandemic sort of threw us into this, a little bit of like carelessness of access Mm -hmm. to the backcountry when everything shut down. And that's very much my my perspective. I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone in that. But if we start like putting others at risk in, or even in competitions, like if you start just constantly... Hiring that barrier, then more regulations actually have to come into play in order to create public safety. Or mm-hmm. there'll be a point where somebody gets so injured in the Olympics or something that they have to be like, hey, like we can no longer even have this sport in the Olympics because like the caliber is so high that people will just throw everything at it to the degree where injury is of no cause.
1: But, yeah. And I think totally. it's like, I don't know, like this snowboarding is too much of a metaphor, but it's like, what do we lose in style when we're just going for spins? Like if you're just mm, trying to push, yeah. what are the cool things that you kind of like lose in the process?
0: It brings me back to when we were talking about Winter Olympics when I was a kid. I remember watching Tara Lipinski and Michelle Kwan. <laughs> I don't know what year this was. It was from. a while ago. And I just love Michelle Kwan so much because she was so graceful. Like I loved the, I loved the beauty in it. But I'm yeah. always someone who like defaults to beauty over like technical things.
1: It, like, goes back to your first question you were asking, Gail, about sort of, like, what is it about skiing or what is, how do you kind of, like, talk about it? And I think one of the things I think is appealing about skiing compared to, like, so many other sports, like, running or whatever it might be, is, like, style is such a factor and that everyone does it kind of differently. And so Mm. there is this aspect where, like, whatever, like, you ski with five other people, everyone's kind of, like, going down the same place in a different line, hitting Mm. little different things. Like, there's not, I don't know. I think that as a sport is, like, there's such an appealing quality to
2: that well and I I think it loops into your chapter about risk really beautifully and like the Mm -hmm. psychology of risk so I actually went to school for dance that was my my degree was in Mm -hmm. modern dance and I clung onto skiing by by cross analyzing skiing and dance as a way to not let my professors tell me to stop skiing and I'm (laughs) I'm like I have this little internal obsession of my own around the intersection of style and survival and the way that like by pushing Mm -hmm. risk, the body will create an inherent style to survive on its own based on what it knows of itself. Hmm. I think there's something so interesting about that intersection. And what I had never actually brought into that conversation as much was that psychological factor. And I'm probably going to now go track down those professors you referenced and spiral into their research through this. But I think that that's such a huge factor in all of the style that we talk about, both in the body and in apparel and how you show up to the mountain and so much of, of even the ski bum lifestyle coming back to that style. And its, it's actual like structure with the concept of surviving.
1: Yeah. And how do you kind of fit in the context and show that you're part of it, but also show that you're unique and that you're doing your own thing. Yeah, that's an interest. That's a, that's such a bigger question. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, this
0: is one of the things that Heather, I said at the beginning of the conversation, uh, I shared how many thoughts that Tori had, you know, from reading the book and how much conversation can be generated from the topics that you dove into with this book. And it's, it's really just been fun to, to hear that kind of come out just in this short conversation today <laughs> as well. Which really brings me to my last question, which is what for you, Heather, do you believe is the value of taking a hard look at something that, that you really do love? The love shines through in the book that you wrote, but there's also this like critical lens that you put it through. And what, what do you think is the value in that for, for
1: yeah. others? I think we should always be investigating the things we love and to try and understand why and what that, you know, like you know, to kind of get to the, like, you don't just want to be passive, like, you want to make the things better for everyone. I don't want to be stagnant in anything. And I think that, like, in a lot of ways, like we were saying earlier, like, this book raised more questions for me than it had answers. And it sort of, like, forced in in a lot of ways, especially around the risk and mental health, and, like, what does this do for our brains? It kind of, like, brought up more hard things than I have answers for. And so, like, I hope that this, even just like putting the book out there that it sort of like starts these conversations and that we can be talking about it more and we can kind of say like okay you know we figured out some pain points what do we do to it I mean like not that I'm the only person looking at this but that like okay this can be a part of the conversation about like how do we make this thing we love better and how do we make it sustainable for as long as possible I don't nostalgia is such a sort of like piece of this story and a piece of the culture and a piece of this kind of like looking back glory days aspect of that's like kind of tied to this skiing history aspect and I don't want to just be looking back you know I don't want it to be like oh yeah you should have been here you know in the 80s it was way cooler like I don't I don't want to think like that I want to be thinking about like what the future is going to look like and how do we make it sort of like fun and cool and interesting how do we get you know as many people as possible to have have that experience of fighting gravity or whatever we want to call it <laughs> that feeling that style
0: yeah I couldn't agree more and I think that that sentiment carries over into pretty much everything we do in nature in the outdoors
1: yeah and I think that like so many of these things can be so inherently I don't know if selfish is exactly the right word but it's like you're in your own body you're experiencing it on yourself and I think it's like if you can kind of take that and get out of that sort of singular headspace I think that that makes it healthier for everybody and for yourself.
0: Thank you so much for yeah. for joining us. Thank you, Tori, for joining us from the side of a mountain to <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, you can call me on pretty much any Saturday and I'll be somewhere like this. So
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well hopefully we can all talk about it actually on a mountain at some point. Because <laughs> I feel like it's like there's like so many other things to talk about.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Order Powder Days today and start a conversation with your friends. Big thank you again to Heather Hansman for taking the time to talk. You can find Heather on Instagram at hhansman and via her website, heatherhansman.com. All resources are linked in the show notes. Follow along with Tori on Instagram at Tori Duhame. Tori was part co-host, part guest for this episode. Thank you so much to them for joining us and making this episode so much better. I'm not a skier, and more is more when it comes to these conversations. And in that spirit, Tori would also like to thank their friend, Jamie Wanzak, for being such a great sounding board as Tori digested reading powder days. If you enjoyed this episode, I know you'll love our last episode with Heather called Reading a River. Thanks to our sponsor, Uncruise Adventures, for making this episode possible. Big discount codes are linked in the show notes. You can find She Explorers on social media, our website, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter to stay up to date. You can find me on Instagram at gail Straub. If you enjoy listening, there are different ways to support us. You can subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Head to ratethispodcast.com slash Explorers to easily review. And if you'd like to connect, join us in the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. Music in this episode is licensed through Musicbed. She explores as a production of Ravel Media, released every other week on Wednesdays. Until next time, stay curious.